Our scripture reading today comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. And I won't say much by way of introduction, only that it's possibly a scripture you haven't heard spoken about much. With that, now that you're really listening, the word of the Lord. Be subject to one another out of reverence to Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I am applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. May God bless our understanding of this sacred text. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it may come as no surprise to you that I have never preached on this text before. And to be honest, I can tell you I never thought I would. Of course, I also never thought I would preach on the text from 1 Timothy that tells women to be silent in church. How about that for a paradox? But I did that several years ago in California. I am either brave or foolhardy perhaps a bit of both. As many of you know, I am currently writing a book about marriage. It's a mix of personal narrative, cultural commentary, and biblical reflection. As it turns out, you can't get away with writing a book about marriage from a Christian perspective without addressing texts such as this one. Paul's words about marriage in his letter to the Ephesians are, for many, theologically and culturally conservative Christian communities central to the definition of marriage. They don't, however, tend to be central to the way marriage is understood and talked about in progressive mainline communities such as ours. But here's the thing. I believe that as Christians, we must take the Bible seriously. Not always literally, it's not always meant to be taken literally, mind you, but definitely seriously. And ignoring texts such as this one 
does a great disservice to the community of faith. I can tell you, I remember hearing this text, this scripture read once from a pulpit in my lifetime, just once. I was at my friend Twyla's wedding just a few weeks before my own wedding day. As the minister of her conservative Baptist congregation began to speak of wives submitting to husbands, my friend Laura Lee, seated in the pew next to me, grabbed my arm. The minister went on to explain to the bride and groom the hierarchy that would forevermore structure their marriage, the roles that would govern their relationship. As the husband, Lucas would be the head of their household. He would make the decisions. He would report directly to Christ. As the wife, Twyla would submit to Lucas's spiritual and practical leadership. She would report directly to Lucas. She would accept his authority in their house and in her life. So by the time the pastor concluded his wedding homily, my flesh was marked with a constellation of half-moons. Loralee, still holding my arm, had taken her feminist fury out on it with her fingernails. On the drive to the reception hall, we soberly debriefed the wedding amongst ourselves. Twyla had always been one of our brightest and most grounded friends. She was independent, confident, talented. She transcended the boy craziness that marked so many of our peers. I make no comment about my own boy craziness or lack thereof. None whatsoever. Laura Lee's eyes, though, filled with tears. Her anger had given way to anguish. I feel like Twyla just willingly subsumed her whole existence to a boy. At the time, I fully agreed with Laura Lee's assessment. I grieved the presence of an oppressive teaching in the sacred text of my own religion. I was a Christian and a woman, but I certainly wasn't that kind of Christian woman. I had no intention of becoming that kind of Christian wife. I still find that pastor's application of the text problematic. I have to admit, however, that my assumptions about Twyla did not pan out. Even though Twyla willingly entered a marriage of intentional inequality, she never stopped being bright and grounded and independent and confident and talented. She seems, from the outside looking in anyway, to be quite happily married. And Twyla is not the only woman I know who interprets the Bible this way, who has disrupted my assumptions. These friends have forced me to acknowledge that theologically and culturally conservative Christianity does not necessarily make for oppressed and downtrodden women. To be sure, that isn't to say that women in hierarchical marriages are never oppressed or downtrodden. Sexism is a real problem in both the public and private sphere. And when religion is used to justify oppression of any stripe, people of faith should speak out. The irony, though, is this. In its original context, this text was not intended to subjugate women, but to raise them up. Paul was writing, as we know, to the community in, Cor in Ephesus, a Greek city. Women in ancient Greece did not have an abundance of human rights. They were not considered equal to men. 
as backwards as this text can sound to contemporary ears, it was in fact pretty darn progressive in its original context. It's easy to get stuck on the part about wives being subject to husbands. But the passage does begin, be subject to one another out of reverence to Christ. This implies a mutuality in marriage that was entirely out of step with the mores of ancient Greek society. Given that wives were essentially the property of their husbands, it is no small thing that Paul encourages men to love their wives. As Sarah Bessie notes in her book, which is titled Jesus Feminist, these passages were actually subversive in their time because they placed demands on the assumed power of men, teaching them to be kind to their slaves, to be gentle with their children, to love their wives. And because they addressed the most powerless in a patriarchal society, the women, the children, the slaves, the church attracted the least powerful in droves. I've noticed that many progressive Christians struggle to give Paul the benefit of the doubt. He is a complicated and occasionally maddening architect of early Christian thought. But if you can bear to suspend your misgivings about Paul, there is truly good news in his writings, and not only for the Christians of ancient Ephesus, for us. Remember that this is, after all, the same Paul who proclaimed that there is no male nor female, for all of you are one in Jesus Christ. In the Women's Bible Commentary, published by the evangelical-leaning InterVarsity Press, Claire Powell pushes back against hierarchical <coughs> interpretations of the text and offers rich alternative readings. She considers what it truly means to be subject. She understands submission not as something enforced, but embraced voluntarily out of love for Christ and for one another. Another way of thinking of it, she suggests, is giving in. Giving in to others or compromising our needs or wishes is something that is necessary to make a relationship work and is eventually a mark of strength, not of weakness. The relationship advocated is not one of doormat to exploiter, but of equals, giving in at appropriate times to each other in love. That sounds to me like a pretty great relationship. Professor Powell goes on to ponder what Paul might have meant when he argued that the husband is the head of the wife just as Christ is the head of the church. She notes that the word head often carries the connotation of ruler or boss, but that Paul's emphasis here is not on the glorious ruling of Christ, but of his self-giving sacrifice. What the husband stands for when described as head is the caring, giving, sacrificial love that is like Christ. In turn, wives are encouraged to love their husbands with the same caliber of devotion the church confers upon Christ. It is not a matter of who's in charge, of who has the power. It is a metaphor for mutual love and devotion. 
we throw the baby out with the bathwater if we write this text off as outmoded and irrelevant. And part of what we lose if we neglect the wisdom of it is the great mystery, that profound parallel Paul sets forth. The relationship between spouses is an echo of the relationship between Christ and the church. Way to raise the stakes, Paul. Just for the sake of discussion, let's set aside the question of gender for a moment. I don't mean to say there aren't differences between men and women, whether they are instilled by nurture or nature. I simply believe that this passage has a good word about marriage, regardless of whether any given wife subscribes to traditional ideas about femininity or any given husband is the family breadwinner. I believe this passage has a good word about marriage, period, regardless of gender. In all my reading, research, reflection about marriage in the last nine months, one quality has stood out, head and shoulders above all others, as the hallmark of a healthy relationship. It's so obvious that it's easy to overlook, tempting to undervalue. But the most important quality of a husband or wife is this, loving kindness. Now it's tempting to roll our collective eyes at this. If it were that easy, we may say, then why aren't there more strong, stable, loving relationships? Why do so many marriages limp along unhappily or end in painful divorce? But here's the thing, practicing loving kindness isn't easy at all. It's work. It's hard work. It's listening when you don't feel like listening. It's compromising when you'd really rather have your way. It's relentlessly considering the well-being and desires of someone other than yourself and resisting the inherent impulse we human beings have towards selfishness. I'm not going to pretend that marriage is not a complicated thing. There are countless ways for marriages to thrive and countless ways for marriages to fail. But I suspect that the presence or absence of mutual loving kindness is, at the very least, a very prominent part of the pattern. A few years ago, the UCC writer Glennon Melton published a parable about marriage. In it, she described a marriage beset by familiar woes. She writes, the kids came and work got hard and money got tight and the shine wore off each of them. She used to see strong and silent, but now she saw cold and distant. He used to see passionate and loving. Now he saw dramatic and meddling. They allowed themselves to become annoyed with each other. And so they stopped being careful. They stopped taking care of each other because they decided they needed to look out for themselves. Melton goes on to describe the couple at the verge of a breaking point. The wife stands alone in the kitchen, fuming that her husband is once again late coming home. God help us, she prays. And then she does something unexpected, something sort of outside of herself. She performs a simple act of kindness. She leaves a glass of wine on the counter and his 
book next to his favorite chair before heading off to bed. Next morning, she is surprised to find that her husband, before he went to bed, had set the coffee pot to start brewing just as she sleepily shuffled into the kitchen, and he had placed her favorite mug on the counter. It was the start of something small but powerful. The parable concludes with these words. Look, I know it's hard. It's all so hard and confusing and complicated and things get wound up so tight you can't even find the ends sometimes. All I'm saying is that somebody's got to pour the first glass of wine. It takes courage to pour the first glass of wine. It takes a willingness to risk, to be vulnerable, to be subject to the other. We may well not have what it takes to be in right relationship with anyone if we are not allowing ourselves to be guided by the Holy Spirit. We love because God first loved us. How better to learn the ways of sacrificial love but from the one who laid down his life for his friends. Earlier in this letter, before Paul begins handing out his practical advice, he offers this prayer for his readers. I pray that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your innermost being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. This is my prayer for husbands and wives, for parents and children, for friends and neighbors, as we seek to live and love faithfully. Amen.